What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. We always appreciate old and new ears alike. And if you are more of the new ear type of podcast listener, welcome. And we hope you enjoy the show. And uh, if you're interested in supporting this podcast, we'd like to thank all of our amazing patrons who are with us along the way. And if you'd like to be one of them and you'd like to get access to loads of extra content, deep dives and the like, hundreds of hours, I believe, of extra content now, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support mr stay it's been a long week isn't it we should be like relaxing chilling out it's a summer but it's just everything's ramping up isn't it life just keeps on moving forward i've, I've done a bit i've done a bit i went to the beach you know i went for a walk with my son it is nice. It nice i've i you know you do have to um you know find these little moments but i don't know about you it's, especially it's one of these things when you're self-employed and there's not much money coming in. You're kind of like, I can't be sitting on my backside. I've got to be, you know, hustling, trying to get opportunities and stuff like that, you know, and doing bits and bobs and events and stuff like that. So um, speaking of which, uh, I I had a great time at Chatham Library last week as part of the the Medway Literary Festival, and thanks to everyone who came along and uh, saw a couple of listeners there as as well, which was brilliant. Now, here's one. Here's an obscure one. If anyone turns up to this, I, if you come up and say, I'm a bestseller experiment listener, I'm going to give you a book for free because this is, this is, the, this is the Chislet Country Fair, right? Okay. Saturday, wow. 24th of June. It's It's, it's got... Pop, maypole dance. I nearly said pole dancing. Maypole dancing. <laughs> no, that, that's a fair I would like to go and see. <laughs> mix up the old uh, tea and crumpets on a Saturday afternoon, wouldn't it? Blimey. Maypole dancing, Morris dances as an egg throwing contest. Basically, it's like you're actually visiting Woodville Village from the books. <laughs> so if a listener comes up, first of all, if you can find it, I'm not giving you any clues, right? The Chislet Country Fair. If you go to its Facebook page, it doesn't tell you where it is. Okay, so you've really got to look for it. And it's so small. Chislet, you could walk it in five minutes. But I did, their, I did their Christmas fair I did really well. Sold a lot of books. It's brilliant. So, uh, and it's lovely. And the sun will be shining, hopefully, not guaranteed. But yeah, so yeah, come and say hello. She's slick fair. You know, Mark, if I could, I'd just to surprise you, get on a flight and just show up there just for the pole dancing. But um, actually, weirdly enough, you, you might laugh, Mark, but let me tell you a story. Um, first, of, first of July, for all the Canadians listening to this, first of July is Canada Day. And we have a tradition in Canada, at least in our town, in our city of 10,000 people. They call them cities when they're 10,000 people in Canada. I can't get my head around that. Anyway, um, they have a big, uh, you know, Canada Day parade. And we have we have all like all of the local sports teams and the communities and, 
you know, the odd businesses. Um, and there's this one year we're, we're standing at the, you know, our kids are in like the football team and, and they're in there marching along and they've got these great floats. And towards the end of the float uh, parade, uh, we do see this van come along with what looks like a pole on it. And I'm not, and I'm like squinting going, is that a pole? And lo and behold, it was the local pole dancing club. Now I will say that it's fitness pole dancing. Yeah, of course. It's right? very, very good exercise. But you should have seen the eyes popping out of like the, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was all good family fun. But you know what? It was just so surreal. It was just weird. Like here's the like here's the hockey team, Ray, and here's the pole dancing club. <laughs> and then and then just to finish it off, just to finish it off, we had the belly dancing club come along. Now, I think belly dancing's amazing. But then just to completely fry my brain, my <laughs> at the time my little my little boy who's like I don't know about ten, he tugs on my shirt, and goes, Dad, Dad, that's my teacher, and his teacher's <laughs> one of the belly. And he's like, what's going on? Uh, it was like Twilight Zone <laughs> Canada Day Parade. So, yeah, uh, you just never quite know what you get when you show up to one of those in Canada. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So, if yeah, you've got yeah. any funny stories about um, parades in your town, <laughs> let us know because I'm sure there's some good ones. I'm sure there's some good ones. But listen, Mark, we have got such an amazing, and I, and I, I know I always big up our authors because they're all amazing, but this week, is just mind blowing. And we've got so much we want to talk about with this interview that we're yeah. going to cut this bit short and get straight into it. So Mark, yeah. tell us about today's, today's interview. Yes, we did a lot of work just before we started recording. If, if anything, it was a bit of a shadette. Um, so yes, this week's special guest is none other than J.D. Kirk, which is the pen name of multi-award-winning author, screenwriter and writer of comics, Barry Hutchison. Barry was born and raised in Fort William in the Highlands of Scotland. He wanted to be a writer from the age of nine when a kindly librarian wrote his name on the spine of a notebook in which he'd written a terrible short story and put it on the shelf. And we talk more about that. Since then, he's written, right, sit down, everyone. He's written over 150 books for children as Barry Hutchison, and many more for adults. It's, I think it's over 200 books in 10 years. And now is thoroughly enjoying murdering people as J.D. Kirk. And we discuss how both Ian Banks and the school event changed his life. Uh, we talk about working with publishers and the unicorn compromise and how a condition called aphantasia affects his writing. Oh, folks, seriously, you just, you just have to stop so what fun. you're doing. If you're driving... <laughs> I promise you, you're going to write, want to write notes. Um, if you're gardening, you just have to find yourself a nice chair in the corner of the garden and just sit and listen to this because it's absolutely brilliant. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the absolutely phenomenal uh, J.D. Kirk. J.D. Kirk, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, not too bad at all. Uh, although for some reason, despite it being March and there being snow on the ground, my hay fever has kicked in. And I woke up the really itchy eyes and runny nose. I don't know how that's happened. Okay, fair enough. Well, and the other thing, just to confuse listeners, I'm probably going to end up calling you Barry because that's your real name. So that we'll, is my real name, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll call you Barry throughout, but your writing is J.D. Kirk. And well, you've written us all sorts. So let's go back to the very start because this is an extraordinary story. But let's start with Mrs. McAllister, the school librarian, ah, and the, 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 influence, the influence she had in your career. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I was, um, like I'm in Scotland, so we do 
primary one to primary seven, that's our primary school years. And then we do first year to sixth year and that's our high school years. So I was about um, nine years old, um, maybe slightly younger, actually. But we had, um, I, I didn't read many books. Um, I read comics all the time. I was obsessed yeah. with comics, the Beano, the Dandy and all that stuff. Um, and I had a teacher who hated that fact that I, that I read comics. She did not like comics. Um, she uh, did not like me because I liked comics. And um, she used to kind of um, relentlessly mock me in the way that some teachers do um, for, for my love of comics. Um, but it didn't help that I wasn't into football or any of that stuff, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, um, But one day we had a new librarian, Mrs. McAllister, at the, the local library was attached to, to our school. And we got taken along and we had to meet Mrs. McAllister and tell Mrs. McAllister the kind of books that we love to read. And I was made to go last. So the other kids would stand up and say, oh, I like books about ponies or whatever. And, and the teacher says, right, Barry, now you tell Mrs. McAllister what you like to read. And I kind of shuffled up and said, I like reading comics and that. And she said, oh, wait there. And she went through the back. And she came back a minute later with this massive stack of Beano's and Dandies and Spider-Man comics and Superman comics. And she dumped them in front of me and said, there you go, you can read them. And the teacher was fuming. But I was like, I was like oh my God, this is, this is Nirvana. Um, so I went back to the library every day and I worked my way through this massive stack of comics. And I realise now, looking back, that Mrs. McAllister would have been an excellent drug pusher because... Um, <laughs> As I was kind of reading these comics, she would look at the ones I was enjoying and she'd say, oh, that book's, that comic's got a robot in it. There's a book about robots here. Have a look at that. And I would read the book about robots and go, oh, that's really good. And then, and she she weaned me onto the hard stuff. You know, she got me out of comics. I mean, I still love comics. Um, I know I've written for the Beano and everything now. So, um, I, I you know, comics were still my first love in terms of reading. But she weaned me onto books. And I would start going to the library and I'd ask for a type. I'd say, have you got a book about monsters? And she'd go, yeah, come this way to the monster section. Or I'd say, is there a book about you know ghosts? And she would take me to the ghosts or whatever. Not to the actual ghosts, to the books about ghosts. The library wasn't haunted, <laughs> I should stress. Um, and I remember one day, and I was about nine when this happened, and I went in and I, and I was obsessed that week. You know how when you're young, you get obsessed with things for about a week yeah. and then you lose interest. I was obsessed with ninjas. Right. And, and, I, and, and I said, I need a book about ninjas. Stat. And um, and she said, I don't have any books about ninjas. And I felt like bereft. I felt mm-hmm. like, you know, the library has failed me. And she says, but wait there. And she went through the back again. And she came back a few minutes later with a, a big notebook and a pen and said, write a story about ninjas. And I took it away and I wrote this god-awful short story <laughs> full of disemboweling. I was obsessed with disembowelment for some reason. <laughs> the removal of bowels, I was obsessed with. <laughs> so I wrote this, I wrote this, this short story about a ninja who disemboweled a lot of people. And I, I gave it to her and she read it. And to her eternal credit, she wrote my name on the spine of this notebook and she put it on the shelf. And you know, in movies, when you see like the clouds part and that yeah. shaft of light and the yeah. oh, heavenly <laughs> angel choir, that happened. And I've thought, I want to do this. I want to have my books on bookshelves. Uh, so I was nine then, my first properly published um, book came out in 2010 so i was 30 
32. Well, look, the petition to get a statue of Mrs. McAllister put up in the town <laughs> starts now because <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that is, I mean, top work, absolutely yeah, top and that's work. Why I, I, I'm always horrified when I see, you know, talk of libraries closing and, mm. and all that stuff because libraries change <clears throat> lives, you know, and, and oh, yeah, they change absolutely. mine and they've changed millions of others. And um, it's, it's terrifying that they're closing them down. No, I agree. I agree. I also, I'm, I'm interested in the role that Auntie Doris's typewriter played in your career as well. You can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. My Auntie Doris, uh, my mum's sister, she passed away around about that same time, I think, maybe about nine ten. So it was quite a, a sort of um, important period in my life in terms of becoming a writer. And um, there was an old typewriter in her house that was just going to be chucked out, you know. And I said, well, can I can I have this? And there were no ribbons on it. You know, well, the ribbons were there, but it was uh, ink and all but run out. And, um, but I became obsessed with just typing on it, yeah. just the noise of it and just seeing the paper going through. And that just that that sort of um, the mechanism of typing and, and, and creating things on this. And even though you could barely read the letters and, and they were all slightly overlapping and it was, um, was kind of a really sort of, magical thing for me and i i also at that point was watching a lot of um murder she wrote which right my, my mug <laughs> and that bit with jessica fletcher just does that <laughs> i was sitting do that during the credits for murder she wrote, typing nothing but nonsense but um i just love that that movement and that motion of it and, and my fingers creating this stuff that was coming out of my head um so so yeah so those two things which happened quite close together um, were kind of key to me becoming an author, I reckon. It's a very satisfying thing, an old-fashioned typewriter. I had, I mean, the, yeah. the ribbon and everything is so fiddly and it's such a pain and you can't erase anything, but the funk of those keys. For me, it wasn't well, just, it wasn't Jessica Fletcher. It was the Stephen J. Cannell end credits. I don't know if you remember that, where he typed and yeah. ripped something yeah. out. And of then the, pull the, the paper yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have my actual, my Bluetooth keyboard um, is, uh, oh. is like an old soul, and it does... <laughs> But not quite the clack, but it's, yeah. it's close. It's close. And then <clears throat> we skip forward a few years, and this author has been mentioned a few times. I was lucky enough to meet him once. Uh, you got some top advice from Ian Banks. Tell us, tell us about the, yeah, the, the yeah. Ian Banks experience. Well, in in um, high school, in secondary school, I had told a teacher who was um, it was kind of deputy head teacher. Uh, and he'd asked, what, what do you want to do with your life? You know, And I said, I want to be an author. And he said, don't be so silly. People like you don't become authors. That was his exact words. <laughs> be an English teacher. <laughs> Which you know, I felt was disparaging to English teachers for a start. You know, There's a lot of very, very talented English teachers out there. Um, but he said, don't be so... And it kind of knocked my confidence a bit. This person in, in sort of authority and who, who seemed to know what he was talking about um, had sort of had, had said, you know, your dream is is a joke, and and had laughed it off. And then um, about a year after that, Ian Banks came to uh, our school, and it was the first time I'd met an actual author, like a real author before. And he did this talk, and it was like massively inspiring. Um, and I um, went up afterwards and spoke to him and said, "Oh, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to write, but this teacher had said this." And, uh, well, we shall say that Ian had some choice words uh, <laughs> which he shared about that teacher and told me to do it. He says, go and do it. Go and just like, you, and, and just chatting to him, kind of, because he said he'd come, he'd had very similar things before and people said, you know, you'll never make it, you'll never do it. Yeah, yeah. 
So it was like, right, okay, I'm going to do it. And fast forward uh, to about 2012. So this was about 1993, and then fast forward about 2012. And I was sitting next to Ian at a signing table at the Lennox Love Book Festival in Scotland. Um, and I mentioned this to him. And I said, this is, you know, what, how an inspiration he's been and all that stuff. And um, and he'd finished he'd finished signing before I had. He'd started well before me. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. I was signing beyond. <laughs> it started like a good hour before I did. But um, I was getting to the end of the queue and, and, and signing all these kids' books. And then Ian came up and he bought a copy of the book and said, can you sign that? For me, oh. so it was just like a, the most amazing thing. And the other, the other thing about that story, I should say as well, is in about 2014, I was at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I was about to go on for my event, and I saw that teacher. He came in <gasps> walking into the thing, and I mean, I would, he had like at the Edinburgh National Festival, you've got um, like minders with you who make sure you get to the venue in time. Yeah, so yeah. I shrugged them off, basically, <laughs> made a beeline to this teacher, and I said, "Oh, hello. you know, what, how, how how are you?" And he said, "Oh, so what are you doing here?" I said, oh, "I'm just here to talk about my uh, book series for HarperCollins." Uh, and he went, "Oh, oh, oh, well, I'll maybe come and see it." And I says, "You can't." It sold out and walked away. <laughs> I should stress, it wasn't sold out. But it wasn't that <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It's immensely satisfying. Well, look, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about those first books. You mentioned that you were, you were was it you said you were about 31 when you had your first book published. Talk about the road to, to getting published for the first time. Yeah, so I actually, the first writing work I ever sold was when I was 17 and I wrote a film script. Um, a film script called Curse of the Bog Women, which was a comedy horror set in the Highlands. Um, and a, a New York film producer spotted it. I'd shared it online in this um, kind of writer's group thing and optioned it. And um, I ended up kind of developing that a bit. Unfortunately, that company then went bankrupt and the film never happened. But I wrote another film script called Making a Killing that was set in Glasgow. And uh, a British film company... Um, picked that up and we're looking to develop that. That company then also went bankrupt. Um, and I decided at that point I better stop writing film scripts because <laughs> I single handedly collapsed the entire global film industry. You're a jinx, is that, is that yeah. the feeling? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I kind of, I just started writing, I started working in proper jobs. You know, I was, that was, um, I kind of hadn't gone to uni because these, this film stuff had kind of, yeah, it all happened, and I thought, well, I'm going to be living in Hollywood in a year, you know what I mean? Um, so uh, I started doing a succession of proper jobs that I wasn't particularly good at, and all the while I was writing. But I never, I was always doing little bits, I never really went anywhere, they were for my own amusement. And then um, in about 2006, I want to say, uh, so I was 27, 28, thereabouts. I saw uh, an article in my local newspaper saying that there were, had been a talk by these two literary agents, and um, they had uh, there was like, they were running a little competition basically. So you sent them your manuscript. Uh, the winners, of, ten winners, would be picked, and they would get feedback on their manuscript and how to improve it and how to get it ready for submission. So I submitted this, thought nothing more of it. And about a month later, I got a phone call from one of the agents saying, we'd like to take you out of the, the contest. 
And I thought they meant the book was so poor. <laughs> they'd actually phoned me up rather than just not, rather than just not mention it. They'd phoned me up to say, you know, never darken our door again. Um, but instead she said, we'd like to represent it. We think we could, we could sell this. Um, and it was a children's horror book called Mr. Mumbles um, about a boy who's imaginary friend from when he's four, comes back when he's 12 and tries to kill him in a variety of horrible ways. Um, so they took that to HarperCollins. HarperCollins then said, could you write six of these? And I said, yep. <laughs> and they said, can you have the outline for the next five by two o'clock this afternoon because we have an acquisition meeting? It was 12 o'clock at this point. <laughs> so I then spent the next two hours coming up with the plots for the next five books and sent that to them. Um, and then they went, yeah, we'll do that. So um, they they published those. So I uh, did those for HarperCollins and another few books for HarperCollins and then did books for Penguin Random House and uh, Nosy Crow and uh, Egmont and just loads of different children's publishers. Um, well over 150 books in total under a variety of names. I was Odin Redbeard for the Volga the Viking <laughs> series. I was... <laughs> Armageddon for the Disaster Diary series. I have officially, according to the British Library, I have co-written a book with Roald Dahl <laughs> about, you know, decades after his death um, because I was asked by the kind of a publisher on the Roald Dahl estate to do this non-fiction book um, called George's Marvellous Experiments, right. which was based on George's Marvellous Medicine. And um, there were extracts of George's Marvellous Medicine in it. So on the record for the book of the British Library, it's me and Roald Dahl as co-authors of that book, which is fantastic, which is pretty crazy, brilliant. Well, then, like I said, you did, and we're going to talk about your incredible uh, um, rate of writing uh, later, and the, perhaps the the reasons behind that. But then there's a big pivot in your career, uh, Space Team, which mm. came about because someone asked you to give a talk about self-publishing. Is that right? Yeah, well, not necessarily self-publishing as such. I was asked by a school to go right. in and talk about how kids could publish their own work. You know, mm -hmm. it was about talking to teenagers who right, wanted right. to write and how they could publish their own work. And I had no idea because as far as I knew, you typed a book, you emailed it to London, and six months to two years later, a book appeared in the world somewhere. <laughs> and that was my entire understanding of the process. Um, but they were offering to pay me money to go in and do it. So I thought, well, I will damn well learn <laughs> how to how kids can publish their own work. And I had, had this idea for a comedy science fiction book knocking around in my head for a while. So I sat down and wrote this book in about three weeks, This this um, the first Space Team book. And I, I learned, I did it as an experiment. As I say, I designed the cover myself. I edited it myself. I thought, you know, if kids are doing this, they are doing all these things themselves. They're not outsourcing yeah. it. So I did all that. Um, I, I did my own marketing, which wasn't really very much, and I, I put it online. And within about um, a week, it was outselling my children's books. Um, and I thought, all right, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> and I wrote, I wrote a second book, and it started selling even more. And by the time the third book was out, I was earning more from those books in a day than I was earning in six months of royalties from 150 children's books. Wow. So at that point, I thought, right, well, indie publishing is where my future lies. And I still had some kids' contracts to fulfill. I had other books to deliver and all that stuff. So I was doing that alongside the Space Team books. 
but as I was, you know, as those fell away, I just did the publishers would say, right, what have you got next? What what's coming next? And I kind of had to say, nothing. I'm not. I'm, I can't justify spending the time writing one of those books when I could when I could write one of these and not only make far more money from it, but be more creatively fulfilled from it. I don't have to second guess, you know, what a sales and marketing department and a publisher wants to see or. I don't, you know, often they would say things like, you'd have this idea for a book and the editor would love it. And the sales and marketing team would say, brilliant, can you put a unicorn in it? Because unicorns <laughs> are very, very popular at the moment. And you would kind of go, no, not really. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that, that, you know, you would kind of find yourself in a situation where you would have to sort of um, compromise a bit like that. Where doing it myself, I didn't have to compromise. I could write whatever I wanted. And um, And what's interesting is, some of the a lot of the books I wrote were for kids, were kind of comedy stuff. And some of the publishers had said they hadn't really tried selling it in the US because they said they don't think the humor translates. Um, but Space Team, which was the same humor, did massive numbers in the States, you yeah. know, way, way more in the States than it did in the UK. Uh, so I think just letting stuff find its audience like that is is, yeah. is the way to go rather than trying to second guess what's going to work where. Yes. I think particularly with humor. It's always a difficult sell because no one wants to, particularly publishers and editors, they're very, very nervous about declaring what's funny and what isn't because it's such yeah, a yeah. subjective thing. And it's yeah, such absolutely. a such a tough sell. But like I say, the self-publishing allows you to, to find all those people with the same funny bone as you across the world. Now, the, that pivot, self-publishing, that really changed everything for you. And you started your, your own company Zertex Media Publishing how soon yeah. did that come around and, and how did you build that uh, well the first space team was 2016 uh we formed the company in 2019 <clears throat> at that point I had I was free of all kind of other publishing work it was just doing my own stuff um the name Zertex they're the villains in the space team series gotcha. so there's like this global or this galactic corporation of evil called the zertex corporation <laughs> um so i thought right i was this is going to be zertex publishing and um so so yeah so that that was uh 2019 that i put that together and then you you moved on to uh thrillers with like the dci jack logan series and the bob hoon spin-off series from that tell us about those and 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 the the pivot to those and, and becoming J.D. Kirk? Yeah, well, I um, I'd had the idea for the first crime book. Well, I had an idea for one crime book in my head. And it, it kind of came about when my daughter and I were out walking a dog in the middle of nowhere because I live in the Highlands where everywhere is the middle of nowhere, really. <laughs> but we were out walking in this place called Leenikin Forest. Uh, the dog ran into the trees. My daughter was about six, about the time thereabouts. Um, dog ran into the trees, wasn't coming back. I thought, right, I'll go in and find the dog. You wait here. Don't go anywhere. It was a big path, middle of nowhere. I went in, found the dog. When I came out, my daughter had disappeared. And I immediately thought, you know, my wife's going to kill me. (laughs) 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 I thought, well, she kind of, well, she wouldn't have wandered off. You know, she was a a well-behaved child. She wouldn't have wandered off anywhere. There's nowhere to wander. She's not in sight. Someone must have taken her. I got in a real panic, you know, and then a moment later, she popped up from behind the bush laughing her head off <laughs> but that that sort of terror that feeling lingered you know and by the time we'd made it home because it was about 10 mile drive home by the time I got home I thought well this would be a great start for a for a book you know the, the child just disappears like that in the middle of nowhere um, but I was I'm, I'm naturally a very lazy person when it comes to things like research 
So I thought, well, I can never write a crime book because then you need to research how the police work and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, and in about 2018, I was doing an event for Amazon. I was doing a, a, a talk about Kindle and the author L.J. Ross was there, oh, yeah. um, massively successful crime fiction author. Yep. And I told her that I had this idea for a crime book. And she said, oh, go for it. You know, just just, just do it. Give it a go. So I thought, yeah, I might do that. And the, the barrier was still that idea of not knowing how a police investigation works, you know. Um, so I did a bit of research. And I wasn't a big crime reader at that point myself, really. I read a few, right. but I wasn't massively into crime fiction. And then I, I realised as I did a bit of research that people don't want to know what happens in a crime investigation because that's really boring. <laughs> it's like a, an actual murder investigation is tedious. And it's 200 people making phone calls and going door to door in the hope that something turns up. So when I realized that, and I thought, all you've really got to do is have a very basic understanding of of the process, chuck in a couple of acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) And basically, that's all people want. You know, people people don't want real-life investigation. People want a fiction, a small team or an individual detective so they can get to know their personalities and all that stuff. So I thought, well, I could do that. I'd written Space Team, which was a team of people. You know, um, mm-hmm. I thought I can I can write about a team of detectives. Um, and then I was doing another event in early 2019 when I was due to be talking again with uh, L.J. Ross. And uh, Louise and her husband had been so encouraging the first time that I'd spoken to them about it that... I didn't want to let them down by not having started this book. So I knew they were going to ask. So I thought, right, I better start it. So I, I ended I had it started by the time we met up and then I had it finished in April and it came out in May 2019 and I immediately started outselling all the Space Team books combined. You know, it just, it just wow. went, went huge. Um, and I thought, I need to do more of these. And I mm. loved writing it. I couldn't, what I couldn't go over was because I've done the space team was obviously like ridiculous and it's in space and it's aliens and it's mad stuff happening. And and the kids' books were all largely ridiculous. You know, it was the Spectre Collectors, but it's the team hunting ghosts and Night of the Living Ted, which is evil teddy bears coming to life, and you know, all that stuff. So the detective stuff was was far more grounded. You know, mm. it's like it's it's real people doing actual stuff. Mm. Um, and I was amazed how much I enjoyed writing it. What also surprised me, though, was I, I thought it was deadly serious. Um, I thought this is a really, I've done, I've, I've finally done like a serious book. And the first reviews were like, very funny. <laughs> oh, really? How's this happen? What? And it's that sort of character interaction thing of just the banter and all that stuff. And um, But it was never meant to be funny. But, I, you know, as it's gone on, that's become one of the sort of hallmarks of the series that it mm. is, there is that, character humor it's not there's, there's not really slapstick or there's not jokes as such but that character interaction and, and I, I realized that a lot of the, the kind of main character in the logan books and in the hoon spin-off there's an element of me in there that they're they're kind of middle-aged men just exasperated by the world around them <laughs> it's that thing of going that just oh just weird made weary by the world um and and that comes out in quite a funny way you know quite so um so yeah it's become a big kind of hallmark of the series now the humor fantastic well let, let's talk about 
one of the reasons you're on the podcast, and I'm amazed we haven't had you on the podcast before, but I'm glad I'm glad we've timed this for now because uh, a bunch of our listeners got in touch about a, a blog you put up fairly recently about uh, aphantasia and yeah. the, the role that it's played in your life. Uh, tell us tell us about aphantasia and and how it's how it's affected you as a writer. Okay. Well, the first thing I will say is I have no idea if you pronounce it aphantasia or aphantasia. Oh, okay. Fair um, enough. Yep. No yep. idea. I've, I've always called it aphantasia, uh, but I've no idea. So I, I've just, you know. Me neither. And, 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 and the people speaking about it have no idea either. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, what it is, is an inability to see mental pictures in your head. Right. So if you were to shut your eyes now and picture a blue ball, most people would have some sort of, uh, you know, visual type effect behind their eyes. They would either see a blue ball in, in high definition or they would see a slightly fuzzy blue ball or they would see a blue shape or whatever. But they have this sort of mind's eye where, yeah. which allows them to see things. So, you know, you could daydream and you can imagine things or you can recall someone's face or whatever. I think exclusively in words, so I don't, I don't have any images. I have, I shut my eyes and imagine a blue ball. I see darkness, and I think of a list of attributes that a blue ball would have. You know, so so I could describe a blue ball. Uh, I can describe any sort of blue ball of any size and any texture and issue because I know the words that apply to it, but I can't see it in any in any form at all. And I figured this out that this was a thing. Uh, my family and I were on holiday. And we got talking, I can't remember how it came up, we were talking about it, and something they said just made me go, hang on a minute, it was my, I think it was my son. And I kind of went, hang on a minute, like, are you saying you can, like, see things in your mind? And I thought, this is a form of mental illness, yeah. This is, like, there's something, <laughs> there's something gone wrong in his mind, or he's a mutant, like he's evolved <laughs> into some other state. Um, and he went, yeah. And then I can I said to my wife and daughter, I said, this is this is mad. He can he can like picture things, picture things in his mind. And they went, What's he talking about? <laughs> of course he can. Um and then it was like, what? <laughs> and I'd always thought, you know, picture it, mind's eye, you know, all that was just figures of speech. Right. Um and and it suddenly everything made sense. Cause like my dad would say when I was when I couldn't sleep, it was like try counting sheep. Mm-hmm. And I'd go, what what? What do you mean? What a sheep? What are you on about? Um, or teachers going, right, imagine you've got three apples in, in one hand and, and two in the other, count those apples. And I've got like I can't get there's nothing there, you lunatic. I can't count these apples, they don't exist. <laughs> it's five, I know how to count, but I can't do um but suddenly all those things that sort of you know, started making sense. And why things like I tried like meditation years ago, and it was like, you know, close your eyes, picture a beach. And I'm thinking beach right there's probably seagulls I'm big. and I'm just like thinking of the words so my brain gets more and more my brain doesn't tune out to looking at this lovely image it will start working harder to conjure up all the words that are associated with that so yeah. um, so things like that suddenly made sense by, by that didn't make sense at the time sort of thing so I, I think it's like one in a hundred I can't remember how many people have it it's, it's not that uncommon right but it's a complete complete lack of mental images and i think that's why i write so quickly right because i'd imagine a lot of authors will write a picture a character and now i need to describe that character so i need to translate that picture 
into words and then those words go onto the page. Yeah. For me, that's how it starts. It is words. And that's that I can just, you know, I channel those words onto doing my typewriter. Yeah, because I <clears throat> I personally I almost see the scene in my head and I'm there, I'm yeah. like, you know, describing it as 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 it plays out. So you're you don't you cut out that middleman. You get straight to the yeah, words. Yeah, don't see so. any of that. No, which has its pros and cons. You know, like I say, it's all words to start with. But things like um, I, I'm terrible at remembering what my characters look like because right. you know I've I don't have a picture of them. People say, "Who would you like to play?" You know, Logan on TV. I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> you know, he's, he's quite big, uh, and there's certain you know. So they'll all have kind of key characteristics which are easy to remember you know so so those things oh yeah so logan's big and he wears a coat you know so things like that that do that allow me to kind of conjure up that picture that i can then write about that character again you know so but things like um what i always struggled with was like scene composition so if i was saying right they're in a room you know there's there's 10 people in this room yeah and who's talking to who now people will go right a picture in the room and i know who's standing where yeah, yeah. But I could not picture, so I didn't know who was that. So I would use like Lego, and I have Lego men, and go, okay, this. Le- so he's now there now, so I know that he can't talk to him because they're on the other side of the room, but you can talk to them, and he won't hear them, you know. So, yeah. So there was way, you know, workarounds to try and um, get over those those um, inabilities to see things. But the the flip side is is that you have this incredibly prolific output. I mean, how many sort of words are you writing a day? How long are you writing a day for? Um, when I'm when I'm writing right now, I'm in a planning stage. Uh, when I'm writing, generally I'll aim for at least three thousand a day, um, and I'll write kind of six days a week. Um, yeah. That's a lie. I write seven days a week, but I tell my wife I'm writing six days because <laughs> <laughs> she insists that I have a day off. So I'll sneakily do like a, a wee cheeky, you know, two thousand words. Um, but uh, yeah, so generally that roughly about three thousand sort of minimum. Some days, I mean, when I was finishing the the book that comes out in May, the one that got away, the last day was twelve thousand words. You know, so um, right. It's if if things are going well, then it can just keep going. My record is sixteen thousand words in a day for one of my kids' books. A book so scary, it's called Doc Mortis. It's one of the Invisible Fiend series. A book so frightening, it's illegal to own it in Germany. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. so, nice um, one. That's yeah. quite yeah. an accolade. My, my proudest achievement. That must have been getting that. Was it? Was there like an official diagnosis or just realising that you, knowing that you're not the odd one, you, you, you just perceive the world differently to most. That must have been a bit of a pivotal event for you. It must have. You know. Yeah, absolutely. It was it blew my mind. I, I I did a deep dive into researching it. You know, right, so right. it was like because I, I thought, well, what is this? You know, can't see mental pictures, and then found Aphantasia, and uh, there's a Facebook group of people that have you know. And there's also different things like I can't hear music in my head. I never get music stuck in my head. If I hear music, it's my voice singing it, which right. is which is not good. <laughs> uh, so that's why my brain goes, no, no, don't 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 get that stuck. Um, so uh, so things like that there's no sort of not like an internal monologue or any of that stuff. it's a weird weird thing like when I like it's not weird to me it's normal it's just how I think yeah of course um, absolutely it's but but when I compare it to how um, the majority of people think I go oh yeah that is very different how people you know 
but perceive now, the world. Now that you're aware of it, it hasn't changed the way you write at all, has it? it hasn't made you self-conscious of it or anything like that? Or? No, no, not definitely not. No, um, it's what's interesting is people always say that my books are very descriptive and they're, mm. they're really good at conjuring up an image of a place. But it's like, and they go, oh, it's like watching a movie. And I, I'm, I go like, no, for me, it's not. <laughs> so it's interesting that that despite that not being able to picture it, I can somehow generate the words that, that let other people picture it, which is nice. Um, but no, I've never, never, um, it hasn't changed anything. It's made me aware of things a bit more. So I, I realise that when I'm reading, if there's big passages of description, then I'll skip over it because I can't, it's just, I'm just going, right, okay, it's a room, It's it's got slightly dated furniture, I get it, I don't need to know everything else, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I'll sort of zone out a bit and, and go on, and I love, I've realised that's why I love writing dialogue and character interaction, and the I love the rhythm of words and how, how they sort of fit together. So a sentence can be, an editor can send a sentence back and say, those words should be the other way around. And I go, yeah, but that doesn't fit with the tune that's in my head. So I need to <laughs> I need to flip them back that way. And I don't care if it's grammatically correct. That's the only way it works. Um, so, and that took a bit of time working with, um, you know, Harper Collins and things. That was in my third book before I, I kind of went, actually, I quite like that the way it is. Yeah. And the editor went, yeah, that's fine. And I was like, what? Hang on a minute. Yes. I thought you yeah, were in yeah, charge. Yeah. I thought, I thought you, I had to do everything you said. <laughs> oh no 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 no! It's all just suggestions. You know, it's your book. Yeah. And I went, all oh, right, okay. Well, I'm changing nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, that's a <laughs> great mo- that's a great moment when you realise you can do that. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it hasn't really changed much. It's just just aware that, and I kind of go. Well, one of my strengths, I think, is writing dialogue and that character stuff, and and I think that comes as a result of of you know not getting too bogged down by what things look like or any of that stuff. Brilliant. Now you mentioned Lego there which weirdly is the next on my sort of bullet list of things to ask you about because you and I share uh, a love of the meditative qualities of Lego. Oh, it's great, the best, great. isn't it? It yeah. is, it is, absolutely. <laughs> it, is, it is the closest I get to meditation. Um, yeah. Uh, Do you reward I yourself? I know I know. we have, because uh, one of our listeners, Jeevani Sharika, I know she rewards herself when she's finished a draft with a new Lego set. Is, is it a reward system that you give yourself or...? I'd, I'd love to say I was that disciplined. I'd love to say that I did it only when I, I published a new book. But I just I just bought um, the Atari set, you know, the Atari right. um, console. Thing. Just bought that. And, and they also, at the same time, they suggested that I might want to buy the Optimus Prime. So I went, yeah, go on then. <laughs> why, why not? And when it comes to Lego, the easiest upsell in the world. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I've got loads to build. I've got the typewriter, the Lego typewriter. My wife got me that. Brilliant. Uh, so I've got that to build. But it looks insanely complex. So I opened yeah. like, the first bag, and it's all these tiny little, like, loop pieces. There's, like, you know, a 500 of these and it's like oh i might just try i might just try the millennium falcon you know? um so yeah no i love it i love I, I, it is complete and i come up with some of my best ideas when i'm when i'm doing lego because yes. you yeah. can just tune out and go okay right yeah. i've got a story problem i'll take a break and do lego for an hour and when i go back i know what the next part is you know yeah um, so it is i i highly recommend lego and dog walking excellent uh, for generating ideas excellent stuff what have you got coming in 20 you mentioned a book in may what else have you got coming in 2023 uh so one just came out uh on 28th of february called one for the ages i have a copy somewhere um that one just came out 
Fantastic. Uh, hit number one in the Kindle chart, which was nice. Um, it's hit number one in the Bookstat ebook chart for overall book ebook sales, which is lovely. Fantastic. Um, and it's still it's still knocking around the top ten on Amazon, so that that's really nice. Uh, I've got the one that got away, which is the first in a new series, which comes out uh, at the end of May, and then there will be two more DCI Logan books this year uh, in I think August and or late July and then September, I think. Brilliant. And possibly something um, something surprising in November. Fantastic. Well, look, this is the thing is you give us this gift of vivid characters and stories and descriptions that we play as a movie in our heads, a lot mm. of us. And you you do, it's kind of bittersweet that you can't but then you're you enjoying the writing, you know. So it's your gift to us. So we yeah, all thank yeah, you for that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so, thank you, thank you. I'm <laughs> glad someone stuff. gets to take advantage of it. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Barry, for speaking to us today and hope to speak to you again real soon. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, Mark, I tell you what, I live for these kind of moments in the podcast. It absolutely brilliant. Uh just just wonderful, wonderful. Just just person. to say as well, if if you're listening to that. And you're listening to uh, Barry talking about aphantasia. And is it, it might be aphantasia, aphantasia. I went on YouTube and looked at all the um, how to pronounce it videos, and there were ones for each. So I don't know how, how you pronounce it. But if you're listening to that, and, and like Barry, you're thinking, hey, that's me. Um, we're going to put a link in the, in the show notes to the aphantasia uh, network. Uh, so you can check that out. So it's, it's aphantasia.com. So and yeah. you can learn well, let's, about let's it. Well, let's, let's talk about aphantasia as well, because it did strike me as I was listening to that, I was thinking to myself in terms of thinking of, of, of our audience on the podcast, that there will probably be a number of people that will have ha- suddenly be having this revelation that Barry had. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. Barry obviously had kids. It happened later on in his life. So it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's something which is happening inside our heads. So we can go for many, many years in our life without realizing that that's not what most people experience. But listening to Barry's experience of it as a writer, it seems like it's a superpower in some <laughs> strange way. I mean, you could see it as a real, like, you, you know, you were talking with him about how it, it seemed a shame that he can't. Um, visualize, if you like, the things that he's seeing, the movies. Because I, I was thinking of the idea of this movie playing your head, which is what I kind of experienced. But the fact that it seems to like just enable him to write so prolifically is almost like a superpower as well. And from a writer's perspective, I'm just curious as to how. If well, firstly, if you've ex- if you're listening to this podcast and you've suddenly realized actually that's me, we want to hear from you. Let us know if this has been your kind of wake up or aha moment where you're thinking, holy moly, and and tell us a little bit about how it has affected or how it helps your writing. If if you, if you've kind of tied some things together, but um, have you heard of this before, Mark? You know, have you talked about this with others before? I've not. No, no, it, no. it was new to me. And I think um, I think what it illustrates more, more than anything else is we all have our own way of perceiving the world. And that is something, whatever kind of writer you are, you need to be aware of. It's something I talked about in last week's extended version in the craft bit. I was talking about the the kind of biases that we have. We we can't, There are certain base boilerplate things that we assume about the world that we assume everyone else has and this is this is one of them we just assume oh people all think the way i think people hear things the way i hear things people imagine things and they don't so i think once you find something like this it opens a door for all of us to realize okay yeah the, this idea of you know neurotypical or whatever i think we're all on a you know 
all perceiving the world in a slightly different way. And um, I think that uh, and the more we learn about these things and this thing as an author, it's all about empathy. You've you've got to put yourself in the shoes of other people, other you know, even people. Uh, you know, when you're writing your villains, when you're writing your heroes, they've they've all got to be the hero of their own story. So it's just all about realizing that the world doesn't you the world doesn't see the world as you see it, and mm. that's a very important lesson to learn. Yeah, I actually had one of those moments. It's not quite as kind of you know mind blowing as 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 the story that that Barry talked about, but I was at a festival once, and it was really like the 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 porter potties or the porter cabins <laughs> rank and and i was chatting with some of the, the band and and they're saying how can you go in there and i said i'll just block my nose and they're like what do you mean you block your nose i said i just i just i can just block my sense of smell no, and that's a superpower at, well then they looked at me they looked at and listen i was like in my 30s mark and they looked at me and said what do you mean block your nose I said i can just do it i can just turn it off i can turn no off smell way i like what? And, and this yeah and and I don't understand this because I can just do it so easily and I try to explain it to people. And most people say to me, what do you mean you turn it? And to the, and honestly, it was only because of this interview that it kind of triggered the memory again. I've never really had a co- proper conversation with even the doctor about how I do it, but I can literally block off my, my nose so I can't smell anything and wow. I can do it. I can do it like that. So am I weird or are there other people out in the world? So listen, if you can do that as well, it's very handy. I mean, it's brilliant for, you know, many situations. <laughs> but, did you, uh, did you, you like, I, when you were a teenager, did you like work in an abattoir or a butcher's or anything like that? No, that- I don't. I, honestly, I, I've n- and it's that thing. It's, I've never questioned it. It's just, I always thought that everyone else could do it until I talked to people and everyone's like, what do you mean you can turn off your smell on and off? And I, and I just do it. And, and it's actually a movement. Uh, it's actually like, it's almost like I've got, I know it sounds weird, but it's like I've got flaps at the top. It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> How just, have we got six just, and a half years through this podcast and I'm learning this now? Just <laughs> it's, almost, it's not quite like that, but it, in terms of how I visualise it, it's almost like I've got like flaps at the top of my nostrils that I can just close <laughs> off my nostrils. <laughs> I don't understand. So listen, if there's a doctor out there that can explain what I'm experiencing, <laughs> I would love to understand it. Maybe it has a name. I don't know. But I don't think I've ever met, because I've only had a, a very small number of, com- not on a national, like international podcast, of course, but like very small, like conversation <laughs> with a couple of friends about it in my lifetime. So anyway, that's, that's my... I don't know which I prefer. I prefer probably just to uh, to be able to write prolifically than to be able to turn off sense yes. of smell. But. Yes, yes, yes. Can, does so it help weird. you write? Let's get back on track. We'll get back. <laughs> <laughs> on, we've got so much to talk about. I don't know why we went off for Tanya, but I had to throw that in. Anyway, um, let's let's talk a little bit about this whole experience that J.D. Kirk Barry had through his youth. And we've got to start with the deputy head at his school <laughs> who told him, you got to, you know, don't be daft, don't be an author, become an English teacher. And I mean, firstly, just, you know, we always, we've always talked about those moments in life where somebody says something that can encourage you, but this happens way more, doesn't it? Somebody saying, get a real job or don't be so dreamy, you know, just, you know, do, do a, get something that's going to pay you an income. And I just love, love the story about how that teacher then shows up. At one of his 
<laughs> I mean, you couldn't write it. Could you? you cannot write that story that he shows Absolutely up. Beautiful, yeah. At the, yeah. Was it the Edinburgh Festival, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he had to go but up to him. What get me? What what get me? Me write words good. Um, what got me is that the deputy head said, "People like you don't become authors." What a thing to say. say I know. Ugh. It's like it's like the antithesis of this podcast, which is yeah. you know, it's just oh, it makes me so cross. So um, yeah, I, I, if if the the moral of this episode, if there's any anything you're going to take away from this. Because you also had the teacher who said, oh, comics aren't reading. Yeah, ignore the naysayers, all right? If anyone gives you an absolute like that, you can't be an author. Comics aren't, you know, don't count as reading. Ignore these people. Anyone who deals in absolutes is... Um, totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. also, it extends, doesn't it, not beyond childhood. It extends to people today that are getting rejected by an editor, yeah. uh, that are getting rejected by agents, that are getting rejected by a publisher. Oh, this is there isn't a market for this. Oh, that's, yeah. an, that's an absolute. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, keep writing and keep sending us your stuff, you know, may, which is basically saying, well, maybe your novel in three novels will be good enough to publish. Like, these are all people with opinions. And I would say this again, opinions are the cheapest commodity on the earth. It's like, please, please, please do ne never, ever take the stuff to heart. Always take the good stuff when people encourage you. I mean, we can talk about that in a minute. But when, when, when people encourage you, like, like fill your boots, fill your boots. But if anyone ever tells you that you're never going to be able to do something, what you have to realize is what's actually going on there is it's them self-reflecting to you how they feel about themselves. It's them self-reflecting to you that maybe the deputy head wanted to become an author and didn't have the cojones to do it, right? Yeah. And then has to basically justify their decision that they made 20 years ago by telling everyone else that they can't do it because God forbid if they did do it, it might make the deputy head feel like, what if I had actually had the courage? And that, folks, is what's going on. It's completely the opposite of what we hear when we receive that information. I, you always hold the mirror up and go, ooh, you've had an interesting life, saying stuff like that. And, and there's a story behind it. And you can always challenge people on that and say, oh, did you, were you thinking one day of being an author? And you probably, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I thought I, I went and became a, my dad told me I should probably like, you know, study for as a teacher. And then you suddenly realize that there's a motive behind why they're telling you it. It's not that they don't want you to succeed. It's that they, well, actually, it's, it is that they don't want you to succeed because they're feeling like a failure in their own life. So just remember yeah, that, folks. Yeah. And for the last time, people, comics count as reading, all right? From the Beano <laughs> to this. Asterix to We've Tintin to Mouse to Sandman to 2000 AD, From Hell, Judge Dredd, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Saga, Star Wars, whatever you were, comics are reading. If anything, they're more Difficult to read because you're not just processing words, you're processing pictures and blending them together. Comics are hard. I've tried writing comics as well. They're really yeah, hard. They're really so, hard. Yeah. We both, oh. I mean, we're here talking about like us, like, you know, old men now in our, and, and we both, <laughs> this is our story. We both grew up in comics. We, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not read books until I was. I mean, I read a few little books, but I didn't read proper books, like, you know, decent, decent, like, <laughs> you know, quotes, some, something, <laughs> something over 50 pages long uh, that, we, you know, you can, you consider to be a, an adult written story. I was, I was 12 at 13 up until then from my, from ages four up until right the way through to early teens, I read comics. I just all, it's all I did, but I, I didn't just read them. I devoured them. 
Mm-hmm. I collected them. I had stacks and stacks. Yeah, yeah. I would go to car boot fairs. I'd buy annuals. I bought so I must have read more than most kids, even though they were little kind of bubbles with words in it. So if you're if you're listening to this and your child is not interested in reading, get them comics. It's it is the route in. Let's talk about that now because okay. Mrs. McAllister. Oh, Mrs. McAllister. Story, I've listened to. I've listened to. I listened back to this about three times. It's such a brilliant story. Yeah. But uh, firstly, we want to find out: Is Mrs. McAllister still out there? If yeah, you Barry, are, let us please, know. Barry, let get us, know. us know or get in contact. If somebody knows this Mrs. McAllister in the Scottish School Library somewhere, we don't know if she's still alive. But if she is, we would love. We would love to play her back. Um, mm. If she hasn't heard it, that piece that, that Barry, the story that Barry told us, but absolute genius foresight like that is how you work with children isn't it and you encourage i mean on every level just encouraging and i love the fact that she started off by giving him a load of comics um so she didn't fight what what you know the other teacher was obviously like struggling with it's a right protagonist antagonist in the whole story isn't it Mm -hmm. those two but the fact that she slow and maybe she didn't have an ulterior motive or a big plan to get him to write but in that moment, she gave him that notepad. And I often think to myself, having listened back to it, what would have happened if she didn't give him that notepad? Yeah, yeah. Would would he be on this podcast today? Would he have mm. written 200 plus books? I just think that we talked in the past about finding a partner. Like if you have Find Your Julie, so a partner or a friend who's really supportive and helping you, encouraging you to write, pushing you to write, telling the good, you know, all of those things that we need as a writer to hear. But we all need a Mrs. McAllister, don't we, at any stage in our life. And so if you've if you had that person in your life that changed everything for you, maybe at a young age, we want to hear your story. So um do do contact us on the podcast and tell us about this person so that we can honor them. Um, because I think people like Mrs. McAllister don't get enough credit in the world. They're 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 very quietly doing working their magic in the backdrop of the world. And, and then, I mean, let's remind ourselves, Mark, of that experience you had, because talking about teachers that encouraged and inspired you. Yeah, well, I, I the first fantasy I read um, was The Wizard of Ursi, Ursula Le Guin. And it was a teacher called Miss Maloney at Woodville School who, uh, you know, got us reading, reading it. And um, I invited her to the launch of The Ghost of Ivy Barn, my last, which is a Woodville book. And I dedicated the book to her and a couple of other teachers who encouraged me. And it was just great. She came along with her son and granddaughter and it was really moving. It was really, you know, a a wonderful thing. It felt like um, it's just nice to be able to turn around and say, thank you. You know, I I probably wouldn't be doing this if it hadn't been for a little bit of encouragement. I just, you know, just teachers going, yeah, you're good at this. Keep going. It makes such a difference, such yeah. a difference. Uh, you know, it's so it's, yeah. I mean, you know, bless them all. Um, totally. And, you know, and like he said, libraries change lives. Absolutely. Oh you know, my gosh. And, and then you get someone like Ian Banks who, now I'm, I'm, I've been blogging about, uh, cause it's been 10 years since we started filming Robot Overlords. So I've been looking at my diaries from 10 years ago and I saw roughly 10 years ago this week, Ian Banks passed away far too young, far too young. And I, I had the pleasure of meeting him and as did JD. And again, that that full circle thing where he met Ian Banks at a school visit who 
as you said, had some choice words. But then a few years later, he ended, you know, Barry ended up sitting next to him at a signing table and then Ian Banks asked Barry to sign his book for him. I mean, man, you must be pinching yourself, you know. Yeah. But Ian ba- he knows, Ian Banks knew. He was a good soul. He knew what he was doing when he did that, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But the fact that he did it, so many other authors yeah. might just yeah, be like yeah, yeah. so wrapped up in their own glory of their book signing. They wouldn't be thinking about how, yeah. how doing that one random not really random but a planned act of little kindness, act of kindness yeah right planned act of kindness that just took you know barry's world to a whole new level because it i do i do really fundamentally believe that there are people in our lives that come into our lives at certain times when we most need to get some level of external validation not not that not to feed our ego it's never about that Although it, that, I mean, that's obviously does does happen, but it's actually about helping us to believe in ourselves. It's the external validation that finally allows us to wake up to our own brilliance, our own genius, our own talents. That we, you know, everyone has these. We all have different things that we're good at doing, and we have to celebrate them. But when somebody outside of us, who we really a- admire, gives you that level of feedback. You then believe it, and that belief is like rocket fuel to whatever it is that they're talking about. When you, whether it's your writing, whether it's talent that you have, and so I think you know, as 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 authors, any successful authors listening to us right now, like what can you do? It'll have happened to you as well. What can you do at your next book signing? What can you? How can you continue encourage the next generation in quotes, you know, of of authors who are on their journey? Because I think it's really important to remember just how incredible powerful those small moments are they might not seem like much to the person doing it but the story that then comes on the podcast you know like x many years later is phenomenal absolutely brilliant now let's let's also talk about um oh it's just so much to cover let's talk about the um the value of meditative work for working through problems story problems or just general mental health stuff like you talked about how much you love to do lego and that's something you Mm. shared with barry um barry also mentioned dog walking we've had a lot of people talk about just going for walks and working through ideas and challenges do you know for me mark what it is is puzzles which as i was listening back to the interview i thought what is what is a lego kit but a three-dimensional puzzle i am like and, and, and I don't know if people have noticed this, but if you go into like bookstores now, there's usually a whole puzzle section. It's all happened yes. since COVID. Our library, talking about, you know, libraries, we need libraries. Our libraries has a puzzle section now, has a whole massive section where you can, you can there's like 100 puzzles that you can just take one and return it. Um, but this idea of doing something other than writing to work through your writing, I think is a very, very powerful technique that I don't think enough people know about or think about doing. Yeah, I, I, Lego's expensive. I appreciate that. So what I've started doing <laughs> is taking them apart and putting them back together again. And I don't know if most people know this, but you can find, if you don't have the instructions anymore, they're all online. Lego provide them as PDFs. It's brilliant. So, oh, you know, brilliant. whatever, if you take the kit apart and then put it back together again, you've, you've got two exercises in. But I, I know that 
I can feel my blood pressure going down as I do. <laughs> There's absolutely yeah. no question that it sends me to a much, much calmer place where nothing else worries, you know, worries me. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I remember when I was at uh, Orion, we published Richard Hammond's book, you know, The Top Gear Guy, and he had his car crash. And he's, you know, he had brain damage because of their car crash. And he credits Lego with essentially rewiring his brain and healing his brain wow. when he was recovering. So uh, I think there's absolutely a, a lot in this. And, uh, you know, if you can get your hands on Lego or puzzles or whatever, yeah. it's just something where you're not – it's challenging and it's engaging and it's rewarding because you've got something at the end of it as well. The thing I like about, thing I like about puzzles in particular is that it's social as well. I found in a world where kids are – disappearing to their rooms and playing on video games or we have a pu we actually have a dedicated puzzle table right in the middle of our main room and we used to just have a puzzle once a year at christmas and then it started to extend into january and then february and i started finding puzzles that were themed around certain types of year so there's i've got a halloween puzzle now and a spring puzzle and a summer puzzle, and then i just get random stuff but what i found is brilliant is i could never imagine my 19 year old son doing a puzzle he, he bloody finished one off the other day. I walked in to do a few pieces and it was done. I'm like, oi, who's finished the puzzle? But we, we were all sit, sitting around the table. You know, sometimes there'd be two or three of us. And you, just, it's, you don't even have to have conversations with people. Sometimes it's about sitting there and just being, being with someone and doing something together. And it's a lovely way of, the, firstly, the socialization side of things. I think that's a bit hard with, le bit, maybe a bit harder with Lego building. I've done it. No, I've done it. Have I've you done, done it? My, okay. My, my four-year-old great nephew, okay, who hasn't, I haven't been able to get to know him because he, he, he lives quite a distance away. And of course, through lockdown, the last time I'd seen him, he was essentially a toddler. And so he has no memory of me at all. So he came over a few months ago and I had a little Lego kit and I was like, come on, let's do this one together. And we had the book out and I was saying, right, can you pass me that bit? Where do you think that goes? So we did that together and we spent about an hour working on it together. And apparently my nephew said, uh, yeah, he calls you the man with the Lego now. And I'm like, the man that's, with the Lego. If that's then how he remembers me. I guess I love it. I love it. It's, it's great. My thing actually, Mark, as well, is I have a number of this sound like I'm a real geek now, but I have about three different puzzles, which are, which are bookshops. And there's something, it's so, it's kind of like, I'm looking at book themed puzzles as well. And there's some right, brilliant right. ones out there. So if you have never thought about doing that, folks, as a writing exercise, I want to give you some homework today in this podcast. I want you to think about getting a puzzle and setting it up and just having it somewhere in your house. If you've got space to do that, watch out for your cat. Cause my cat jumps on the table and it walks off with pieces. Absolute <laughs> nightmare. But, but we want you to try this as an experiment. Um, use it rather than sitting and trying to work through something that you're stuck on just go and do a puzzle and think about it there and it's magic happens it's incredible so do try that brilliant stuff well listen in the extended episode edition of this podcast we've got so much that we want to cover uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about um agents and competitions and, and really dive deeply into like the value of entering competitions and the incredible things that can happen like we saw with with barry getting taken out of the the competition and, and getting a deal um we're going to talk about um how you can reframe the possibilities of your writing out but we're going to like really examine why what is what magic's happening there with with barry's writing how is it that he can write three thousand words a day um hacking write 200 words and it seems like at a 200 books and it seems like a joy for him not a, not a torture we're also mm. going to talk about the the value of um, talking 
going out and talking to, to students and, and what that can lead to, how this self-publishing route changed Barry's life. There's so much to cover. And also the unicorn compromise, which is really going into, you know, things that you're asked to do by your publisher that you don't want to do. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit about declaring your dreams and author accountability and how that helped Barry move into writing crime and again, changed his writing life. So if you'd like to dive deep with us in the extended, then pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and pledge an amount to support the, uh, the continued making of this podcast. And you can get all of these extra goodies. So Mark, let's chat about this week's amazing wins by our listeners and Academy members. Okay, got a fun one to start with. We've got Penilla Hughes, who's been a guest on the podcast as well. Uh, she talks about milestones. Yesterday, I saw a book of mine in a charity shop for the first time. I've been published for nearly five years. I can't decide whether it feels like a milestone. It feels like, oh, look, my, it's my book. But on the flip side, it's been given away. Obviously, I did consider buying it as it was only a quid and excellent value. So milestone or not, what, what do you think, Mr. D? I think it's a milestone for a number of Absolutely, reasons. Number yeah, one, yeah. if you never published a book, you're never going to get into a charity store. Number two, I buy a ton <laughs> of my books from thrift stores and charity stores. That's how I discover new authors. And number three, if somebody's actually read the book and loved it, there are two different types of readers. There are readers that read books, love them, and hang on to them for the rest of their life and reread them. But there's other kind of people who just, they read a book, they love it, and they want to pass it on. And that's exactly, how they do it. Yeah. So I think, yeah. you know, the more, I mean, let's be honest, go into a charity shop. Who Who's the number one author you see the most, most novels of? It's usually James Patterson, right? Because he's the yeah. most published author. Mm. And so I think it's a right of honor. Let's bring it on. Let's get more of our books into the charity stalls. And, uh, and uh, hey, maybe that's a way of, distributing some of our own novels if you've got a stack of them in the garage they're better off a couple of them in the charity stores doing some work on your behalf yeah. you might end up getting some more readers so uh we got a lovely little win from liz green who does brilliant non-fiction and is you know an editor and a consultant when it comes to non-fiction but she's been working on a novel and uh she says you'll all appreciate this she posted this in the bxp team which is you know where a lot of our patron supporters gather and academics gather and she says you'll all appreciate this my word count tracker shows i finally cracked ten thousand words finally and she posted a, a picture of it on the bxp team now you know we were talking about an extended version tracking your words and the the profound effect that has on your your productivity and it really does make a difference doesn't it, it does yeah absolutely brilliant stuff liz congratulations and we've got a couple of authors just weirdly in the same week uh changing their cover art style so ian w sainsbury Kindle Storyteller Award winner. Um, he's Jimmy Blue Books, which I love. I absolutely love these books. Um, they've been given a complete kind of makeover. Uh, so they, uh, they've they gone, basically the covers are black, red, and white, and that runs through the whole series. And it really captures the kind of Jekyll and Hyde kind of uh, character at the center of it. So, um, you know, it's, and he's doing this, you know, to, to just experiment and see if it makes a difference to sales as well. And likewise, uh, the, Liz Hurley, Elizabeth Hurley in, in the BXP group, who writes here as Anna Penrose, she's just updated uh, the cover to her book, The Body in the Wall, and it is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. So covers, that makes such a huge, huge difference to uh, to whether or not, you know, re meeting those kind of reader expectations uh, of what's, you know, between the pages. So it can be a massive, massive difference. Yeah, so good luck to and, both of them. And actually remembering that interview, I think interview number three or four that we did at the very beginning of the podcast about talking with Shannon Mayer, the prolific uh, indie writer, 
who said that she it was the changing of a cover of one of her books that changed yeah. everything for her it started selling it sold 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 when before it wasn't selling at all so really encourage people you know if you're sitting on a book that's not really doing what you expect and you know it's a really good story then hey maybe it's not the story maybe it's the cover so well, it's good to experiment, folks. Absolutely. Right? And it's something I was reading about in a book called From Zero to Four Figures, Making $1,000 a Month Self-Publishing Fiction by our very own Paul Arduin, member of the BXP group. And actually, I'm hoping he's just published that this week. I've got a copy. I'm very interested in making $1,000 a month from self-publishing. So I'm, I'm dipping into that. I'm hoping to get Paul on maybe for deep dive soon we should do that soon so maybe not but there i'll put a link in the uh in the show notes so you can check that out because it's available uh, across all platforms as well and it, it covers some really really good stuff there so congrats to paul on that brilliant paul well done and just going back to to basics here the 200 word a day challenge it really really does work uh just i just love this tweet from roshin meany uh who says Come on, get writing, everyone. You can do 200 words before breakfast. And it's so true, isn't it, Mr. D? Absolutely. 200 words. It's like it's less time than it takes you to make yourself a cup of coffee. In fact, make yourself a cup of coffee. Start your words whilst the kettle's boiling and race the kettle. How many words can you write before the kettle is boiled? You can get at least, I reckon you get 50 to 100 if you just went for it. Right Absolutely. in the in right a couple fear. of minutes, right without Go fear. Go for it. Yeah. So do that, folks, no and question. then and enjoy your cup of tea or coffee as you finish off your two hundred words, and maybe yeah. a few more for the day, because that's what we tend to find. People that do the two hundred word challenge on average, on average, are writing over six hundred words a day, yeah. folks, and that's the Absolutely. magic. Of it. So if you want to go and try it, 200wordchallenge.com. It's our free challenge to all of our listeners and friends and family as well. Tell the world about this because it really does create a habit for a lifetime. It's scientifically proven, folks. So go for it. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with people, uh, we're on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Uh, you can find us at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there where you can drop us a line uh, via email and we read all of them. And uh, yeah, get in touch. Tell us your wins. Tell us what's working for you. Brilliant stuff. And if you'd like to join our weekly newsletter, again, go to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com. Click on the newsletter tab and pop in your email and we should also make a bit of a re- re- reveal a few <laughs> weeks ago we had uh, we were talking about favorite words and we put a challenge out to our listeners and we said oh send us some words interesting words that we may have never heard of and we got an amazing word today didn't we by sarah so Sarah sent us this amazing word, which Mark and I have slipped into today's <laughs> podcast, one in the, uh, in the regular podcast and one in the extended edition. Uh, and the word of today, Mark, is... Charette. And Sarah says, you recently asked for unusual words to drop into the podcast. Apparently, charette from French for little cart means an intense period of creative work before a deadline. I think we've all been there. Yes, we have, Sarah. It can also be a a meeting specifically set up to brainstorm a problem or design something. Apparently, it's used in North America, so Mr. D may have come across the uses, but I've never heard it used here in the UK. And uh, it comes from the etymology. Charette is derived from the French word for little cart in Paris during the 19th century, Professors at the École des Beaux Arts circulated with little carts to collect final drawings from their students. Students would jump on the charrette to put finishing touches on their presentation minutes before the deadline. Look, we've all learned something new today. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah is also at Bardy Mum on uh, Twitter, and I'll put a link to her website as well so you can check out her poetry. 
So if, you, if you've got an interesting word for us to sneak into the podcast in the next couple of weeks, uh, just drop <laughs> along to the contact us and uh, send us uh, send us an email. That's brilliant. And and just to say, like living in North America, I've never heard that word before. So uh, I absolutely love it, though. Perfect one. And very love tied it. in today with all of the deadlines. Yeah. Uh, the extended edition, yeah. right? So so don't forget, folks, if you'd like to support the podcast, it's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support um, and then get access to what we've probably recorded about half an hour extra today for everyone that wants to go a bit deeper with us but brilliant stuff well listen folks thank you so much for joining us and it's a goodbye until next week from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye goodbye